going to Matthew chapter 11. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew. This is now message number 28 in this series. And this message is entitled Measuring Faith. And we'll be looking at verses 20 to 30. And so we are going to look at verses 20 and 21 here just to get started. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So the last time we looked here in chapter number 11 at verses 1 to 19, and in the first part of this chapter, Jesus confirmed the ministry of John the Baptist, and Old Testament prophecy uh, had led to John and Jesus and uh, that present generation of Israel with the kingdom near. And John came, he was uh, According to prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, he was uh, the forerunner of the Lord, and he came to prepare the people of Israel for the Messiah and for his kingdom. And that primarily meant repentance on their part, but they, for the most part, they did not respond to John's ministry with repentance. So Jesus compared that generation of Israel to whom John and, and he had come, to foolish children that were just impossible to please, impossible to, to satisfy when things are just not the way that they want them to be. And that generation of Israel had rejected John, they had rejected Jesus, and, and although the ministries of John and Jesus had some differences to them, but they actually preached the same message, and that message required Israel's repentance. Well, John was a prophet, Jesus tells us, and he was a prophet uh, like Moses, like Isaiah, like Daniel, like the prophets we know of and think of in the Old Testament. But he was also more than a prophet because he saw the Messiah. All of those other prophets, all the way back to Moses, even as great as, as Moses was, uh, whom God spoke with face to face, he did not see the Messiah the way that John the Baptist did. So he was greater than a prophet, he was more than a prophet he saw the Messiah, and he declared that the Messiah had come, and he declared that the kingdom was near, and in fact, it was nearer than it had ever been to that point, but Israel would not receive him. And so the opening section um, in this chapter 11 that focuses on John then leads right into this last part of the chapter where Jesus continues to address the multitudes, and he gives them uh, a serious warning as well as a sincere offer. Now, the previous um, section of chapter 11 marked a change, and we talked about that a little bit as we started into chapter number 11, how that we see a, a change here in, in Matthew's gospel. And that change is certainly clear by the time that you get to this latter part of chapter 11 because we have the, the meek and mild Jesus denouncing the cities of Israel in the strongest terms. 
He proclaims his own deity clearly. Uh, He contrasts himself with the leaders of Israel, uh, and he promises rest to all of those who come to him. So we're going to look at this last part of this chapter. Um, There are two main parts here in verses 20 to 24, uh, where Jesus speaks of the cities that are worse than Sodom. And then in verses 25 to 30, where Jesus speaks of true rest. So we'll begin here with the first part, these cities that Jesus um, spoke to. We'll begin again with verse number 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Now, first of all, we have to realize that Jesus is still addressing multitudes, large crowds of people. Um, There are large crowds of people that have been crowding around him. They've been following him around um, for some time now. Now, this word upbraid, that's a a good old-fashioned word. We probably don't uh, use it a a whole lot anymore. But um, the word that is used here, it's very strong. And it means a severe reproach. It, It is to rebuke or to denounce someone for wrongdoing. Now, the cities that are referred to here would mostly be those cities of Galilee and, and the three cities of the northern side of the Sea of Galilee and a little bit to the west. That They're mentioned specifically a little later in, in the passage. And recall that by this point, um, Jesus has gone throughout um, many places in Galilee. He has sent his apostles out, and they were going into all the cities of Israel Uh, Just in a few chapters later, chapter 15, Matthew talks about how Jesus goes out into some broader regions, and some of the Gentile regions included at that point. So, in other words, a lot of Israel, those in Israel at this time, they have either seen and heard Jesus for themselves, or they have heard of him, and they have heard of his coming. And even in the case of the apostles, they went out into all of these cities and they were working these messianic signs as confirmation that he indeed had come. Now, Jesus focuses particularly here as he begins to upbraid these cities. He focuses, you notice, on the cities where the greatest number of his miracles had been done. Now, these were cities um, north of the Sea of Galilee, places where he'd operated like out of Capernaum, which is, which is named later, which had become something of a home base during this Galilean ministry of, of Jesus. And there was a great concentration of miracles done in those cities. So Jesus says most of his mighty works had been done in these very cities that he is now rebuking. Now, it's interesting when you read, uh, you read the Gospel of Matthew to this point, and even if you read any other accounts, you don't read of these particular cities where Jesus was experiencing uh, extreme opposition. You don't, you don't read about in these particular cities where uh, they were, you know, running Jesus out of town or, or, or seeking to do so. In fact, as you're reading along in in the gospel to this point, Jesus' fame has grown um, and has spread throughout the region. He's he's gathered large crowds of people from roundabout that are are following him around from place to place. He had healed multitudes of people. 
He had healed multitudes of people to the point that um, sickness had to be something that had become, at least for a time, somewhat rare in this region because he had focused and concentrated um, his ministry at this point here. So Jesus, when he rebukes them, he doesn't rebuke them for following him around. That's not what he rebuked them for. He didn't rebuke them for bringing their sick ones to him to be healed, which we, we know that they did. He rebuked them because they repented not, we read at the last of the verse. So Jesus' presence, his preaching to these cities, his confirming signs of great power that he had worked in these places that they had witnessed more than anyone else in Israel to this point. He rebukes them because they had not repented. That means they had not believed. They had not received Jesus' words. Now, they had enjoyed a lot of the benefits that Jesus brought, but they apparently did not understand what all of that truly meant. If you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at some time ago now, um, Jesus uh, stressed how that they had to hear and keep his words. That's Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 29. And the Old Testament also made clear, we've talked about this with the ministry of John as he came preaching repentance and that the kingdom was at hand. And Jesus also preached this message. He sent out his apostles to preach that same message. And the Old Testament made very clear that repentance was necessary in order for the kingdom to come. And we looked at some of those passages like Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 to 45, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 to 18, and 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. So John and Jesus and the apostles, they all, they all preached this same message, and now Jesus is rebuking these cities in particular because they had not repented, even though they had experienced a greater number of, of powerful works than any others. Verse 21, as he proceeds, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, and ashes. Now, these cities that are mentioned, along with Capernaum here in, in a couple of verses, um, all these cities were very close to each other. They, they were just a few miles uh, apart. Uh, they were on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, somewhat to the west a little bit. Um, and notice that Jesus uses this term, woe. And again, as you're reading in Matthew's gospel, to this point, Jesus' popularity has grown quite a bit, and it seems like large crowds are, are attracted to him, and they're following him around, and they're, they're listening to him. He's, he's healing multitudes of people. And now all of a sudden, we, we get these words, Woe unto you. Now, obviously, that's the first time that we see it used here in Matthew's gospel, but it's a, a pronouncement of judgment, and we see it numerous times in the Old Testament the Old Testament prophets would, would speak woes sometimes to Israel, sometimes to Judah, sometimes to some of the surrounding nations. And it, and it was a, a pronouncement of judgment against them. It's, it's almost like saying, you better look out. You, you better pay attention. You better take heed because judgment is coming upon you for whatever the reasons usually were given later. Now, Tyre and Sidon, these cities that are mentioned, he's actually referring to the ancient cities, um, these were ancient Phoenician cities. Uh, they're oftentimes denounced by 
the prophets, and their destruction was prophesied by Ezekiel, and it came about uh, under Alexander the Great uh, around 332 B.C., and of course then the, you know, the cities were rebuilt and new cities were kind of made. But Jesus' point is that they, had not, they would have not been destroyed the way they were if they had repented. So you can read about woes to them. In fact, in Sunday school, there in, in Joel chapter 3, earlier than, than where Steve was at this morning, there, there was a mention of, of Tyre and, and Sidon as well. If they had repented, Jesus says, they, they, they wouldn't have been destroyed in essence. Now this compares the cities of Israel to these prominent Gentile cities, these these strongholds of the Phoenicians that were, in many cases, looked upon as strongholds of their enemies. And these cities of Israel, Jesus, in essence, is saying, were worse than them because they had the prophets. They had John, and they had the Messiah who had come with powerful signs worked among them, and yet they did not repent. Verse 22, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus continues here to say that the final judgment would be less severe on them than it would be on that generation of Israel. And of course we know it hasn't fully happened yet, but we know that generation of Israel goes on to reject Jesus as Messiah and in fact execute him, have him crucified by the Romans as a capital criminal. Look at verse 23. Art thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell? For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So Capernaum had been central during Jesus' Galilean ministry. It, it in some cases, it seems he may have spent more time there than in any other one location. They had witnessed a great number of powerful miracles that Jesus had worked as signs of his Messiahship. But he says the city would be brought down to the grave, in, in essence, because they had not repented once again. And Jesus goes on here to compare Capernaum to Sodom. Now, Sodom obviously is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, the ancient cities uh, that were near the Dead Sea that were destroyed in Genesis 19 because of the exceeding wickedness of those cities. And as you read forward in the Old Testament from Genesis, you'll find references to Sodom and Gomorrah um, again and again because the destruction of those cities uh, became a, a symbol for judgment that gets echoed throughout the prophets sometimes uh, on Israel and again sometimes on other nations but uh, you can see this usage in places like Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 33 and chapter 32 and verse 32 Isaiah chapter 1 verses 9 and, and 10 uh, Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 14 Lamentations chapter 4 verse 6 Ezekiel chapter 16 uh, verses 46 to 56 Amos chapter 4 verse 11 Zechariah chapter 2 and verse number 9 it's just some of the places where you can see these kind of references. So Jesus now refers to Sodom, and Sodom stands as a continual warning to all of those 
who disregard God's rebuke of sin and his command to repent. So, in essence, those cities had less light than the cities of Israel in Jesus' day. And notice what he says in verse 24, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. So Jesus said that the final judgment would be less severe on Sodom than on Capernaum. Now, I don't really know how that we would get a proper conception in our minds of what less severe judgment might mean. Um, When we think about an everlasting lake of fire, which is um, the ultimate destination of those that um, reject Jesus Christ and live out their sin, it's hard to imagine what more or less severe might mean or look like. So in other words, it's, I don't know that we could try to come up with some sort of a scale, uh, some sort of a graph, or uh, e- even some sort of comparison. But Jesus is, is obviously saying that these cities of Israel are even more guilty before God than those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they had this long line, generations of the prophets that had preached, that had taught, that had written. They had this long line of prophets, again, all the way back to Moses, that had had given them warning. They had John who had come and announced the coming of the Messiah. They had the Messiah uh, in the flesh who had come to them. They had all of this word. They had all of these miracles to, to confirm the words that were spoken. And still yet... They did not repent. So despite all that they had been given, they had not repented. Now remember that the word for repent that is used in in both in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, the, the words that are used for repentance, mean a change of mind. But as we look at these words biblically, you realize that it's it's inseparable from belief. It means to change your mind about what God says. So, really, again, this is quite incredible when we think about what we've read in Matthew's gospel to this point. We haven't yet encountered a lot of hostility toward Jesus. We will, but we haven't yet. We haven't yet encountered a lot of open opposition. We haven't yet encountered the the conspiracies to to figure out how to try to kill him um, and, and to get him out of the way. We haven't yet encountered those sort of things. And again, when you read about these particular cities, we don't read anything in particular about them openly opposing Jesus. So think about what's going on. Jesus has crowds of people around him when he's saying these things. He has crowds of people. Now, I don't doubt that there were many that would come out to see and to hear Jesus. I mean, sometimes just the gathering of a little bit of a crowd is enough to gather more of a crowd, and, and more people are coming. They don't, even have, they don't have any idea why. They just know there's people gathered over there, so they're going over there to see what's going on. So I'm sure there were things like that that happened in that day. People just came out because they saw a crowd. They heard some sort of a, a, a public to-do going on, so they come out to see what's going on. No doubt there were some that, that had heard about Jesus, and so they come out to, to kind of see for themselves. And I don't doubt that there was a lot of them that came out, and, and they were somewhat skeptical. 
can this man from Nazareth, this carpenter's son, can he heal lepers? Can he cure blindness? Can he cause those who have been lame to be able to walk? Can he really cast out demons? I'm sure there were many that came and they had those they were somewhat skeptical. Is this is this for real? Has this really happened? And so they come out to see Jesus and they they witnessed the miracles and and maybe they even sought healing for themselves. Maybe they sought healing for some of their loved ones. And so even though they had maybe come out with doubts and questions and been a little bit skeptical, when they saw the miracles, you know, much, much like we'll read about the Pharisees uh, later, like in the book of Acts, they said, you know, a great miracle has been done. We can't, we can't deny that. Um, it's been done, so how, you know, how are we going to manage it? So even though they had their doubts, they had their questions, and they saw these things, so they had to come to the conclusion, well, I, I, I guess, I guess this, these miracles are, are real. These people really are healed, but Jesus says... They'd not repented. Maybe they had let go of some of their skepticism. Maybe they had some of their doubts laid to rest over whether or not he really could heal someone. But Jesus says, but they didn't repent. In other words, they didn't truly change their mind about who Jesus is and what God has said and what that means for them. So repentance is something that is also biblically connected to sin. In other words, there's something about us naturally that needs to change. So it's a change in regard to sin, a change in regard to Jesus Christ, and whatever that they may have thought. And sometimes we can read about how the crowds even, well, let's take Jesus, let's make him our king. They'd been convinced that he had the power to do the things they'd heard about, They had not repented. They had not believed in him as Messiah and obeyed his words. Well, then we get to the next part of this, beginning with verse number 25, where Jesus talks about true rest. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. So notice, first of all, that Jesus is, is here, again, he's addressing these multitudes. He's, he's publicly praying. He's directly addressing God in heaven as Father. And he emphasized here that he's Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, complete sovereign supremacy of God. Lord of all heaven and earth. And, if, and of course, the, the meaning or the reference there would be that all these events, are according to his sovereign will and in his control. And he says that God, in his sovereign will, has hidden the understanding of all of these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them to the babes or to the young children. Now, the wise and prudent or the wise and understanding would refer to to those... um, the, the, the educated and, and trained leaders and teachers of Israel. And he's saying, God did not reveal his son to Israel through those leaders. That is not 
how God chose to work. Rather, God came to the destitute house of David, and, and it was a house that was uh, essentially fallen uh, um, upon uh, poverty and obscurity and, 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 and insignificance. He came to the destitute house of David. He sent a man from the wilderness in camel's hair clothes. He called and sent fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots and reformers. He sent them, through this word, he made known his Messiah, his son, to Israel. Verse 26, Jesus says, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. In other words, he's praising God's will, God's plan, God's execution of his will. Now, of course, some were greatly offended at how this revelation came. They were greatly offended at the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, they were greatly offended at, at the, the uh, disciples, the apostles who um, preached this message and, and so on. Verse number 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now, you're going to notice here that Jesus is making claims of divinity and he is making claims of messiahship. So he confesses in, in this verse that he's not working these things of himself. All things have been given to him by my Father. And you notice he uses that possessive there in verse 27, my Father. Not just Father, our Father, Father in heaven. My Father, he says, has given me all of these things. Now, he has used that term a few times, chapter 7, verse 21, uh, back in chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. And the meaning of which, for Jesus to stand publicly and talk about my Father, whom he has identified as the God that is Lord of heaven and earth. So for Jesus to claim his Father... The meaning of that was not lost on those wise and prudent, those leaders of Israel. In fact, uh, John chapter 5 and verse 18, in John's gospel, he reports, Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They did not miss this claim of deity that Jesus, in essence, is publicly declaring himself to be God in the flesh on the earth. And they wanted to, all the more to kill him because of it. No, they had not repented. Jesus further, here in, in verse 27, is further making plain that no one knows the Father except through him. No one comes to the Father except through him. And there's other statements uh, in, in the Gospels um, that, are, that are saying very similar. But essentially, Jesus is saying here very plainly, there's one way 
And there's only one way to know the Father in heaven. And that's equivalent to what we might call being saved. Having eternal life. Having forgiveness. Having pardon. Having justification from sin. Escaping the wrath of God. Being rescued from that condemnation. It's to know the Father. And Jesus says, the only way. No one will know the Father except through Him. So you cannot reject Jesus Christ and His commands and be saved. Again, there were many people, no doubt, standing in in these crowds that were convinced that Jesus had great power. They were convinced that he had more power and was greater than any prophets that had ever come before him. They were convinced of that. But they had not repented. They had not believed. You cannot be indifferent to Jesus and his commands and be saved. You can't reject Jesus and his commands and be saved. And you notice also how Jesus further asserts his deity. No, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. He had referred to the Father's sovereign will, and he claims the same for himself. In other words, he, he makes, he makes, again, he makes himself equal with God. Whoever that he chooses to reveal the Father to will be those who knows the Father. Let me get to verse 28, which is something of a transition as we go from that public prayer to his declaration, which is sort of the conclusion of what he has been saying in chapter 11 to these multitudes. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this particular section of of Jesus' teaching ends with Jesus' direct words to these multitudes whom he had just said were unbelieving and unrepentant. The only way to the Father is by him, and then immediately Jesus bids all to come to him. Jesus called those who were weary and burdened. And those are, those are not just general or or lightly chosen terms. Earlier he had said that he came to call the sick to repentance. This is back in chapter nine and verse number twelve. He didn't he didn't come, you know, like like a doctor doesn't doesn't come to uh, cure the healthy in, in essence, but but to come to cure the sick. He had he had come to call the sick to repentance. Now the same word for burden that is used here, here it's translated uh, heavy laden here in verse 28. The same word is used in Luke chapter 11 and verse 46 where Jesus is denouncing the Pharisees because they put unbearable burdens on the people. And of course he's talking about their, um, their, their teaching and their, their way, their system. Uh, they had a system that had come from 
uh, scripture partially and, and from a long line of, of traditions and, and customs and um, even at times picking up um, fairly new things and we'll encounter some of that um, as, we, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew as well. But all these things, the Pharisees were just heaping up on people. And we'll get to the passage in Matthew 23 where Jesus talks about this as well. And he uses language that is, is similar um, to, the, to the idea of overloading an animal. So imagine having a, a horse or a donkey or, or something, some beast of burden that you're putting this great load on, but you, but you have overloaded that animal to the point that it, it can't carry that load. It's just broken underneath it. And that's what Jesus said, that the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the priests and all the leaders of the people of Israel, that is what they were doing, was putting these unbearable burdens on people. And so he, he calls out to those, again, this is a message going forth um, to Israel at this point, calls for those who are weary and burdened. And not only were they weary and burdened, but they had no hope of rest unless they came to Jesus. And, of course, coming to him is a call for a change. Leave the burdens of the leaders of Israel. Leave the way of salvation being taught by them. It was empty, and it was hopeless, and it was only making them more guilty. And then Jesus promised that he would give them rest. And, again, not not a, a casually chosen term. This concept of, of rest comes over from the Old Testament. It's a common uh, metaphor of salvation, of, of everlasting life. And, of course, it's significant that it is promised to Israel through the son of David. Uh, places like Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, verse 15, and 23 to 25, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. In other words... Once again, it's a thoroughly messianic claim and promise. It's a claim of divinity on the one hand. You come to me and I will give you rest. He doesn't say come to me and I will show you the way. I'll show you the way to find rest, to achieve rest, to gain rest. He says you come to me, I will give you rest. It's a, it's a claim of deity. And he says I will give you rest. And again, that rest that is promised only through the Messiah, and it's interpreted that way, uh, again, by the writer of, of Hebrews. So it's a thoroughly messianic claim and a thoroughly divine claim and a promise. The call to come to him, you'll notice, it's not for healing. It's not to come to him out of curiosity to come to one who seems to be different than anything else they had known. I mean, he commands the wind and the waves he commands demons and they have to obey him he heals blind people that have been blind from birth all i mean it's something different he the way he talks they said he, well, he talks having authority you know he commands he he makes law he says i say and you have to listen to me if you want eternal Life. He talks like no one else. But Jesus doesn't say to come to him for all of, those, all of those things. He says, essentially, come to him for salvation. Come to him as Savior. Come to him as promised 
Messiah. Come to him as Son of God. Verse 29, he continues, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, taking up the yoke was a, was a common image of being apprenticed um, to a master, to, uh, and essentially it meant to, to live with and to follow some sort of master teacher. Uh, you would listen to the, the teaching, you observe the life, so um, you're, you're, you're essentially going to conform your life. And so conforming their lives to the leaders of Israel had only left them weary and overburdened with no hope of rest. Well, Jesus' way was not like the way of the scribes and the Pharisees. Coming to Jesus means finding a gentle and lowly Savior who receives everyone who comes to him and doesn't turn any away. Verse number 30, he explains, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus had condemned the leaders of Israel, and he will continue to do so because they bound unbearable burdens on people and gave them no help and gave them no mercy. Well, Jesus does not call us to him so that he can grind us into the dust. He doesn't call us unto him so that he can overburden us with fear and guilt. He, do, he, he doesn't call us to come and find rest from our weary sin burdens for just a little while. Come and I'll just give you a little break. I'll just give you a little relief. And then you can shoulder them up again and, and go on with them for another little while. It's not what Jesus calls us to. Well, the miracles that Jesus performed were real and very powerful. But he offered something so much better than temporary healing of a sickness. And, and most of us probably have something about us, and maybe there's some impairment that we have in some way. Maybe there's some type of sickness that we, we live with, there's usually something about us that we would like to be rid of. <laughs> We'd like to change if, if we had, you know, the opportunity. But there's something so much greater than that in what Jesus is offering, and that is salvation and eternal life. So when we think about this passage and we think about measuring faith, as it were, we realize that faith is not measured by excitement, emotions, by interests, by various effects, because all of those things were present in those crowds that were following Jesus around. And yet Jesus says, you have not repented. So there was not faith in them. Now, faith is measured biblically by repentance. Again, it's inseparable from belief. Israel had not repented, and they were unbelieving. And Jesus is here warning them that judgment is coming. And we also learn in this passage that just judgment will be severe 
on the active rejectors of Jesus Christ. Those who have long heard his words, but have not repented. Now again, I don't, I don't have any sort of a scale that I could propose that we use to try to measure more and less severe terms of judgment. But I know that the warning is, is very real. And even though I, I can't really conceive of what that might mean for much less or severe or greater, I know enough from God's word to know I don't want any of it. I don't want the lightest of judgment against my own sins. And that is exactly what Jesus is promising and that he gives us rest from. Lasting rest, lasting healing. But again...